Hi, everybody, and welcome to the seventh and penultimate session on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. This week, we are discussing chapters 15 and 16 of the Chamber of Secrets, and we are now well into the third act of this story. And I was going to open this week's session with a discussion of the overall structure of Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, but I'm going to push that off to next week. So I'm going to begin this week by asking you all for your thoughts, for your perspectives, for your experiences reading this book, particularly when we think about the structure and the pace of the core plot. As I've said before, there are some similarities between Chamber of Secrets and The Philosopher's Stone, and we're going to look at those a little more closely next week, though they are by this point undeniable. By this point, Dumbledore has been exiled once again from Hogwarts. He has once again left the building. Harry and Ron are about to go into the chamber, into the uh, Forbidden Forest, excuse me, and then descend beneath Hogwarts into a secret chamber where Harry will alone come face to face with his arch enemy. We've kind of been down this road before, which is why I've entitled this session Retracing Our Steps, because there is a sense of real familiarity. We're really going to seal that, though next week. So as I said, get in touch. You can email me directly, podcast at storywonk.com, or you can have this discussion over on the Storywonk forum. But I really want to know your experiences of reading this book, particularly if you were reading this book as it came out, as it was originally released, in the context of the Philosopher's Stone or the Sorcerer's Stone, because I'm increasingly fascinated as we move through this series by the notion that the Chamber of Secrets is a refined and more developed version of the Philosopher's Stone, that there are so many recurring elements, so many common structural components. And this isn't going to be true as we move through the rest of the series. Rowling is going to deviate wildly from this template. These are, in a sense, the only two books that are going to follow, at least this closely, this standardized Harry Potter template. So I'm really interested in your thoughts. Get in touch and let me know what you think. And if you're watching live, of course, you can get in touch right now as I scour my various windows. I say various windows because this week is a very exciting week. Not only this week can you chat with me here in the YouTube chat where I see Evelyn and Jennifer and Sarah and Allie and Jeff and Carla has managed to make it, which is wonderful. Not only can you chat in the YouTube chat, you can also chat on Twitter using the hashtag Swidump, S-W-D-M-P, where I find Jeff and Amanda and Janine and Kate. Lovely to see you all too. But you can also hang out for the first time in our Discord chat room, Right now, it's a little quiet. I'm not going to lie. Discord is a little quiet at the moment. We're just getting it all set up. But Discord is a really interesting platform for future live events here at StoryWonk. We're, we're absolutely thrilled to have launched our Discord server. Um, it is effectively a suite of chat rooms. We have chat rooms dedicated to each of our individual podcasts. And every single one of those of you who support us on Patreon, patreon.com storywonk, get access to the Discord server. We're still figuring out how to use it most effectively, but for now it's going to be a really useful and hopefully fully featured uh, adjunct to the discussions that we have here during these live sessions. So everything is working perfectly, and I'm very glad to see it. Excellent. All right. Let's begin then with a... Uh... Oh, actually, let's begin with an announcement. I completely forgot that I have an announcement to make because I promised that I would make this announcement first of all here on uh, on Dear Mr. Potter. Let me futz with my windows here so that I can share with you a very exciting piece of information, which is the announcement that we are now ready to start talking about, ready to start planning 
the There and Back Again Tolkien's Middle Earth Seminar series. As you can see here, this series is going to begin on the 10th of January 2017. Just a few months from now, we are going to delve into Tolkien's world. We are going to look extensively at The Hobbit. We are going to look at the entirety of The Lord of the Rings. We're also, as you see there at the top, going to begin by discussing Tolkien's amazing, incredible essay on fairy stories. That's also going to serve as an introduction. This series was supposed to be a year long. That was the initial concept. It is not going to be a year long. If I scroll down to the bottom of this list, you'll see that, in fact, it is set to end in August of 2018. That almost certainly won't happen either. I'm sure we will stumble our way into September. But this is going to be a live and accessible document that you'll be able to find in the show notes accompanying this very podcast. So there and back again, the next seminar series that I'm going to run after we're done with Harry Potter will begin on the 10th of January 2017. And guys, if you have hung out with me for this long, then I'm sure you know exactly how excited I am to talk about Tolkien in this kind of depth, to go to these kinds of, 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 of lengths with these amazing books, to really get into the complexities and to focus, of course, on the story. I can't wait to discuss it. I'm, I'm right now biting my tongue so that I don't discuss it more and we can get into Harry Potter instead. But that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. If you have any questions about that, let me know. Get in touch. Great. All right. Let's do this thing. I have a couple of questions before we get into our reading from this week, both of which I think are are absolutely fascinating in, in, in different ways, but both of which are, are just fascinating. I've spent a lot of time thinking about both of these questions over the course of the last week. The first came to me from Dave, who emailed this. I had a thought this morning. Presumably, all of the dark wizards we've seen slash read about have been from Slytherin. That means we've only ever seen one very specific type of dark wizard. However, we know that it's possible for dark wizards to come from the other three houses as well. This made me wonder what a Gryffindor dark wizard would look like, or even one from Hufflepuff. I'll let that sit with you for a moment, because I can imagine what a Gryffindor dark wizard would look like, and I can... To a similar extent, imagine what a Ravenclaw dark wizard would look like. I have trouble with a Hufflepuff dark wizard, let me tell you. Um, so we do have a few... We do have a few textual references here that we can draw upon. I find this an absolutely fascinating question because we've talked about the ways in which the house system can be descriptive. The ways in which we we find identity, we we cleave to our tribe when we're talking about the house system. But... There is something else there, too, because it can or should or might, not within the framework of Chamber of Secrets, but later in the series, and certainly as we move into the extended Harry Potter universe, when we start thinking about things like Pottermore, it will work as something approaching a virtue system. It will be true, ultimately, that we can describe most people in terms of the four houses of Hogwarts. As I've said before, I don't think that we can do that yet. I don't think that the system is sufficiently sophisticated in Philosopher's Stone or in Chamber of Secrets to really delve into that. But we all have, I think, by this point, a kind of osmotic understanding of the houses of Hogwarts and how they work. So if the classic archetype of the Dark Wizard is a wizard from Slytherin, a wizard who embodies those traits of ruthlessness, of ambition, of greed, of a certain megalomaniacal narcissism, 
then what do we make of the possibility of wizards from other houses? Can we take those virtues and twist them? Can we take those virtues and subvert them? Can we take those virtues and simply carry them too far? Well, maybe we can, in fact, look at this week's excerpt. We can, in fact, look at the pages that we're about to discuss, because Gilderoy Lockhart is canonically a Ravenclaw. As we're going to discover in this reading, Gilderoy Lockhart has has made his name, made his career by effectively stealing the stories of other wizards. He has gone from place to place, siphoning up the most exciting tales and claiming them as his own. And in a way, that kind of subversion, that kind of, of facade, that kind of lie is antithetical to what we think of when we think about Ravenclaw. Ravenclaws pursue truth. They pursue learning. They are the intellectually biased house. But what Gilderoy Lockhart has done is antithetical to the pursuit of truth. And if we don't care so much about truth as an absolute moral factor, then we can at least say that it is antithetical to the pursuit of accuracy, antithetical to the pursuit of fact. Gilderoy Lockhart is, is a liar. He's a charlatan. And in a very powerful sense, it seems to me at least, that that is the Ravenclaw version of a dark wizard. I find that really curious. The other example that also comes from Ravenclaw, and, and this is a much, much softer example, and certainly I wouldn't want to put Gilderoy Lockhart on the same level as, as he who must not be named, but, you know, for the purposes of this discussion... Ravenclaw gone bad, to me, looks a little like Gilderoy Lockhart. I was also reminded of Professor Quirrell, who is also canonically Ravenclaw, but his experience is very different because he didn't seek to mislead anyone. He was led out into the world by a desire for fame. There is an interesting commonality there between Professor Quirrell from Philosopher's Stone and Gilderoy Lockhart from Chamber of Secrets. They both are very interested in fame. But Professor Quirrell went out into the world to seek out the remnants of Voldemort following the First Great Wizarding War. And in so doing, of course, fell under the influence of Voldemort and was ultimately possessed by Voldemort, which means that we can't really hold him responsible for his actions. The other example that I could think of, and I can't really delve too deeply into a discussion of this because, of course, it's going to become so much more relevant later, is Peter Pettigrew, who was a Gryffindor, and yet, turned. I don't want to go too deeply into this, um, partly for fear of spoilers and partly because I think if we start talking about this, we're probably never going to stop talking about it. But let me say this. It is generally accepted, I think, that Peter Pettigrew turns because he has this nihilistic, fatalistic belief that fighting Voldemort will do no good. And it may well be said that Peter Pettigrew's failure there is a failure of courage, the underlying principal virtue of Gryffindor. Gryffindors are nothing but courageous. But Peter Pettigrew, though he was sorted after a long and difficult process into Gryffindor, is challenged by that. He fails that test. And in his cowardice, surrenders to a much, much darker power. Now, of course, it's not quite that simple, and I don't want to be quite that judgmental, but that, to me, is the other example. So, all of this is to say that I think dark wizards can arise from any house, but it seems to me that dark wizards arise from Slytherin in the fullest manifestation of the virtues associated with that house. 
Whereas dark wizards arise from other houses through a failure to embody their primary virtues, through Gilderoy Lockhart's deceit, through Peter Pettigrew's cowardice. And I'm not sure how I feel about that, because that, of course, simply codifies this idea that Slytherin is house evil. The kids who are sorted into Slytherin are never going to be any good at all. And I'm not entirely comfortable with that idea. So is there a way in which we can a way in which we can seek to understand dark wizards, particularly Lord Voldemort, of course, through the lens of a, a warped or a, a failure of virtue, rather than the embodiment of those virtues which Slytherin wear, you know, on their on their shirts, on their sleeves. What do we think? Perspicuous Enigma says on Twitter, I seriously can't imagine how Lockhart was a Ravenclaw. There's just no way. You know, I had trouble with it too, but then I remembered Quirrell, and I think that I feel as though there is something there. There is a connection. There is a, a, I haven't quite unpicked it all, but I feel as though there's a thread of, of fame and celebrity in the Ravenclaw heart. And I'm not entirely sure what it is, but it doesn't feel entirely out of place to me. I'm not sure what you guys make of that. Yeah. Yes, and and as Perspicuous Enigma says, no spoilers, but a certain Hufflepuff becomes a Death Eater in Cursed Child, which I have heard about. I have not yet read Cursed Child. One of these days I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down and read it. Oh, and Lab Girl brings up, maybe Lockhart chose Ravenclaw and the Sorting Hat listened. Yes, of course, we're swinging back to the idea there that that the Sorting Hat kind of processes. It, 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 it forces a choice. It forces a, a, a moment of self-awareness and then simply accepts and acknowledges that. That may be the case, though, again, when we think of the reputation of Gryffindor as being the house of heroes, they're just the best, they're the, the most stand-up people, they're the greatest people in the wizarding world. I feel as though Gryffindor would would be so immeasurably larger than the other houses combined if if there was any element of self-determination in the sorting hat process. Though, again, who can say for sure? Yeah. Kate says the houses are not necessarily what you embody, but what you value. Pettigrew was not brave, but valued and respected bravery and power. I would want there, I think, to 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 tear apart that little combined phrase that you have at the end there, Kate, bravery and power. Um, he certainly was attracted to power, and I think that power comes with an ability to be brave, but it's not a bravery that is, in its way, authentic, I think. Um, but that's a really interesting idea, certainly. And let's see here in the YouTube chat. Yes. Um, yeah. As I have to scroll back because you guys are so very verbose today. <laughs> oh, Emily says, Dumbledore does say in the seventh book, I sometimes think we sort too soon. Um, which is a phrase that I find enormously interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, let's put a pin in that. Hey, you know what? In five years, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about that. Oh, I should say, because uh, because I announced the Lord of the Rings session, the, the Tolkien session at the beginning here, we are going to get around to the Prisoner of Azkaban. That is probably going to be around this time next year, I would say, probably starting in August of next year. We'll look at the third book in the Harry Potter series. My intent, certainly, and I can't imagine anything happening to derail this intent, but my intent is to look at each and every book in turn. The Half-Blood Prince is going to be a longer book. Order of the Phoenix is going to take us the better part of six months, I would imagine. Yeah. All right. All right. 
Good. Let's um, let's get into this. There is a lot of discussion here. Obviously, I can't filter all of that live, or I'd just be reading the chat room for the next 20 minutes. So if you have thoughts, do get in touch. We can wrap all of this up, of course, in the last session. Excellent. Klutzy Ballerina in the Discord chat says, I could see a Hufflepuff as a populist dark wizard, one who appeals to our commonality and then corrupts. That's fascinating. Yes. Yes, I think there's definitely something there. Um, yes, this idea of, of wielding loyalty, that could be very, very powerful. Um, I'm going to be thinking about that. Thank you for that thought. That's a good one. All right, let's uh, push on to our second question. This one a little more specific to the work at hand. This question came from Kimber, who writes, I really enjoyed the discussion of Harry Potter as two stories, the school story and the fantasy or fairy tale story, but I was thinking about Dumbledore and this passage from the end of the last reading. So this is a quote from the end of the passage that we discussed in our last session. However, said Dumbledore, speaking very slowly and clearly so none of them could miss a word, you will find that I only truly have left this school when none here are loyal to me. You will also find that help will always be given at Hogwarts for those who seek it. For a second, Harry was almost sure Dumbledore's eyes flickered toward the corner where he and Ron stood hidden. Kimber continues, Dumbledore is the headmaster of the school, so this seems really irresponsible. As I read it, he's leaving the whole Chamber of Secrets situation to Harry instead of talking to McGonagall. Which story does Dumbledore belong to? And this, I think, is fascinating because you're absolutely right. So often in the course of the first two books in the series, Dumbledore works as as a voice of justice, as a, a guide, as a mentor, that is absolutely a part of Harry's personal experience. That is to say, the fantasy story more than the school story, but he's also the headmaster. So he's clearly a figure of power and authority in the school side of the story, too. But as I was thinking about that, it occurs to me that we have rarely seen Dumbledore act with the authority of the school story behind him. He has rarely enforced school rules, enforced discipline, given or detracted points, a few, you know, powerful counterexamples aside. Generally speaking, it is left to the heads of the houses to administer the day-to-day -day running of the school. We have seen both Minerva McGonagall and, uh, and um, Snape, my goodness, just had a moment there, <laughs> We've seen both McGonagall and Snape display more direct authority over children in their own house and in other houses than we have seen Dumbledore take direct action. And I find that genuinely fascinating. Because we do ultimately have two Dumbledores. We have the headmaster of Hogwarts, who is used not as an active agent within the story, but is absolutely used as a symbol. He is the head of Hogwarts. And as we see as we move through this week's reading, we're aware in a sense that Dumbledore is not simply the head, not simply the administrative head of the school. He's not simply, uh, uh, he's not simply a representative of the school. He is in some greater sense a, a figurehead. He is in some sense the heart of the school. Where Dumbledore goes, Hogwarts will follow. And of course, that will be absolutely codified as we move through the later books, as we arrive at Dumbledore's army. 
you know, what he represents then becomes something enormously powerful, but it is something that is a part of the broader wizarding world. The school side, the Ministry of Magic side, the, the magical bureaucrat side of this particular story. But personally to Harry, Dumbledore represents something very different, it seems to me. Personally to Harry, Dumbledore is there as a guide and as a mentor. So I think it's entirely possible that Dumbledore can coexist in both sides of the story. That as a man, he's in the fantasy story right there with Harry, keeping Harry straight. I mean, this entire <laughs> exercise, this, this yielding of power to this young boy is absolutely true and representative of the fantasy story and also completely insane from the perspective of the, the school story. So I can see Dumbledore straddling that line. How does that work for you guys? Is there is there something there that works for you? Oh, Garrett points out on, on Twitter, Slytherin isn't house evil, it's house ambition. It's just that unchecked ambition is the easiest way to end up evil. Yes, I mean, yes, that's certainly the, that's, that's the line. Um... Though it's not simply, <laughs> it's not simply ambition. It's kind of been softened to ambition as, as the Harry Potter universe has expanded. But it's very clear in the first book that it is also, you know, outright ruthlessness. That it is also a complete lack of of loyalty to one's friends. I mean, there are other other elements that are mixed up with this notion of ambition for Slytherin. But you're right. Even then, though, we see dark wizards arising from an excess of that particular virtue rather than a lack of that particular virtue, as we might arguably see from other houses. So I'm going to continue to, to pull this apart. Yeah. <laughs> Perspicuous Enigma says Dumbledore's leadership style seems to be something of a benign dictatorship, which I think is true from the point of view of the fantasy story, right? It's... it's mm. It is dictatorship. It, it, it is almost monarchistic. He is the king of Hogwarts as much as he is anything else, in that he isn't just, just the administrative head of the school, but he is also a symbol of the school itself, and thereby, of course, because, as we've discussed throughout this, this series, because controlling the means of education means that you effectively control society, Dumbledore is quite simply the wizardiest wizard who ever wizarded. He is maximum wizard. We have arrived at peak wizard here. He's much more than simply, simply the headmaster. He's much more than simply an icon. The man is a legend. He is personally a touchstone for it would seem every single character in the entire series so there is certainly the element uh, we, we definitely can interpret it from from an administrative academic perspective i think we definitely can look at dumbledore and say well you do not do the best job of running the school and you know what the best thing to do as you are being hustled out of hagrid's hut by lucius malfoy and, and cornelius fudge is perhaps not to cast a veiled reference into the corner where you suspect two preteen boys are standing Maybe you should talk to Minerva McGonagall. Maybe you should actually, you know, drag out the big guns. And we do have questions here about about Dumbledore's role in the story. There have been repeated questions about why on earth he hired Gilderoy Lockhart in the first place. Dumbledore is many things, but he has never been presented to us as stupid. And yet, he hires Gilderoy Lockhart. Later in the series... And I want to say this is Half-Blood Prince, but if it's not, then you can definitely correct me. Later in the series, we learn, in fact, that Dumbledore can at least understand Parseltongue. He may not be able to speak it, but he can interpret it. 
Which leads me to the question, how much did Dumbledore know about the Chamber of Secrets? Because we know that he was at Hogwarts at the time. It was widely known that Myrtle was the girl who was killed. He may not have known about Tom Riddle's role in all of that, but he did know that the monster from the Chamber of Secrets killed this girl in the girl's bathroom. Why did he never talk to Myrtle? Why did he never find out what happened to her? Why did he never, if we assume that he has now the ability to, to speak Parseltongue, why did he never uncover the Chamber of Secrets? Why did he never take action? There are a few loopholes here. I think there are a few... Hmm. There are a few interesting kind of questions that we can raise here. The first and perhaps most striking is that it is possible that in the interim between the first opening of the Chamber of Secrets, or I guess the previous opening of the Chamber of Secrets and this opening of the Chamber of Secrets, that you actually couldn't take action. It is possible that Harry is able to get to the Chamber in the reading that we're going to discuss this week only because the Chamber has already been opened, that there is some other more arcane means of opening the Chamber that Ginny has already accomplished under the... The, the guidance under the control of Tom Riddle's essence, the essence contained in the diary. So it's possible that there are some kind of mechanical considerations here. And it's also possible that the Dumbledore is not aware of Moaning Myrtle, or at least not specifically aware, because we don't know the mechanics of ghosthood. We don't know if any time passed between Myrtle's physical body dying and her ghost gaining consciousness or awareness. So there may be some kind of, of play there. There may be, there may be uh, sufficient space there that we can speculate that actually by the time that moaning Myrtle showed up in the girl's bathroom, Dumbledore was perhaps no longer at Hogwarts or was perhaps preoccupied with other things or there's some kind of, of, of mechanism that, that accounts for his lack of knowledge and ultimately lack of agency too. But he should... By all accounts, by all reasonable interpretations, it seems to me he should know more about the Chamber of Secrets than he lets on. And there are a couple of veiled hints in the book that perhaps he does, that it's not it's not who but how, that, that he is aware that something is happening. But then it becomes all the more baffling that he doesn't take sufficient action. And of course, I'm just not keeping up here with, uh, <laughs> with um, all the discussion here. Liz here in Twitter says, I think Dumbledore is always trying to keep Harry informed because he believes in his ultimate destiny. Yes, yes. Jeff says, Hagrid's Hut Hustle, new band name, I call it. Jeff, you've got it. Hagrid's Hut Hustle, all yours. <laughs> Great. Okay. And in the YouTube chat here, Kelly asks an interesting point, or, or makes an interesting point. I often wonder if this role should have been split with McGonagall running Hogwarts and Dumbles being the dean or something that checks in. Yes, it does feel as though even within the day-to-day -day operation of the school that Dumbledore is more a figurehead than the role of headmaster would suggest. Thinking back to the 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 Great Feast, the, the first experience that Harry has of Hogwarts, we see Dumbledore being... Present, yes, but not in an authoritative, you know, role of leadership. He's he's even then more symbolic than he is, than he is really present. Yeah. Good. Chelsea says, "Doesn't Myrtle mention haunting the girl that bullied her there?" I can't remember. Does that's in this reading? 
But I don't remember if she states that as a desire and an intent, or if she says that's actually a thing that she does. That's a great pull. I might, I might have to look that up. Yes. Good. All right. Oh, Evelyn says, My headcanon, Lucius Malfoy, pressed Dumbledore to hire Lockhart. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I'm not sure that I can buy it coming directly from Lucius Malfoy. I'm not sure that Malfoy himself has that much power, but I could absolutely see Malfoy manipulating the school board into applying pressure to Dumbledore. And we can easily kind of imagine the line that that would take, you know? Here he is, the world's most famous, most prestigious, most celebrated wizard. Of course he should be at Hogwarts. Of course he should be a part of the faculty of the school. And who better, given his well-documented history of battling evil all across the face of the earth, who better to teach these young people defense against the dark arts? Yes, if someone is making the case for Lockhart such that Dumbledore has to acquiesce to political pressure, I can absolutely see that working out. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right. A lot more discussion here. Oh, Kelly wraps up. We'll make this the final point because I think Kelly speaks for a lot of us here. Because Dumbledore, Kelly says, being so bad at being headmaster throws me out of the story at times. Yeah, that I can understand. All right, let's uh, let's move into it then, because we have some really fascinating discussions ahead of us this week. If I can call up my slides here, which I can. Excellent. So by the time we begin chapter 15, two weeks have passed since Hagrid and, uh, and Dumbledore were hustled out of Hagrid's hut. Uh, two weeks have passed since Hermione was petrified. The school is reeling all save for Malfoy, who is having the time of his life. He's having so much fun, in fact, that we might even get suspicious. And this is our first slide of the week. That Draco Malfoy character, said Ernie, breaking off dead twigs, he seems very pleased about all this, doesn't he? Do you know, I think he might be Slytherin's heir. Oh, that's clever of you, said Ron, who didn't seem to have forgiven Ernie as readily as Harry. Do you think it's Malfoy, Harry? No, said Harry so firmly that Ernie and Hannah stared. A second later, Harry spotted something. Several large spiders were scuttling over the ground on the other side of the glass, moving in an unnaturally straight line as though taking the shortest route to a prearranged meeting. Harry hit Ron over the hand with his pruning shears. Ouch! What are you... Harry pointed out at the spiders, following their progress with his eyes screwed up against the sun. Oh, yeah, said Ron, trying and failing to look pleased. But we can't follow them now. Ernie and Hannah were listening curiously. Harry's eyes narrowed as he focused on the spiders. If they pursued their fixed course, there could be no doubt where they would end up. I called this out because we had had some previous discussion of Ernie and Justin and Hannah as the Hufflepuff versions of our Gryffindor heroes, and here it seems to me we have the closure of a very satisfying three-beat. First, our heroes suspect that Draco Malfoy is the heir of Slytherin. Then, the Hufflepuff heroes suspect that Harry is the heir of Slytherin. Now, the Hufflepuff heroes have caught up and suspect Draco after all, and everyone is wrong. Our heroes remain one step ahead. We also have here the continuation of this spider beat. And I have a little trouble with this because 
I struggle to imagine how many spiders there are in Hogwarts. I struggle to imagine a sufficient number of spiders such as you could discern organized movement, such that you could predict their course, but yet the castle would not be completely emptied out of spiders by the end of the first hour. So I struggle with this. I'm I'm kind of constantly dragged back to this idea that there must just be some kind of spider generator hidden in a sub-basement somewhere, that Hagrid left some machine running that just generates new spiders so that this trail can be clear into the Forbidden Forest, which is, I completely admit, a, a disquieting thought. Or there is perhaps the notion that the spiders advance and retreat, that they flee the coming of the basilisk, but there's nothing really suggestive in that. There's nothing within the text itself. Aragog does say that they can sense the basilisk, but I'm not sure that we're supposed to believe that that's this far in advance, because we're days out from the next attack. So it is a puzzling element for me, but primarily here I just wanted to close off that lovely little three-beat with our... uh, with our Hufflepuff heroes, which, Jeff, that's another band name. You're welcome to it if you want it. Let's move on to the next slide, because despite Gilderoy Lockhart's reassurance, Harry and Ron resolve to follow the spiders into the Forbidden Forest, and this is where the action of this excerpt really begins. Okay. Ron sighed as he resigned to the worst. I'm ready. Let's go. So with fangs scampering around them, sniffing tree roots and leaves, they entered the forest. By the glow of Harry's wand, they followed the steady trickle of spiders moving along the path. They walked behind them for about twenty minutes, not speaking, listening hard for noises other than breaking twigs and rustling leaves. Then, when the trees had become thicker than ever, so that the stars overhead were no longer visible, and Harry's wand shone along, shone along, oh, excuse me, Harry's wand shone alone in the sea of dark, they saw their spider guides leaving the path. Harry paused, trying to see where the spiders were going but everything outside his little sphere of light was pitch black. He had never been this deep into the forest before. He could vividly remember Hagrid advising him not to leave the forest path last time he'd been in here, but Hagrid was miles away now, probably sitting in a cell in Azkaban, as he had also said to follow the spiders. I want to take a a moment to recognize how how intense this experience is, how overwhelming through the application of very simple detail J.K. Rowling makes this entire experience. Of course, we're returning to the Forbidden Forest, but it is a very different forest than it was in the first book. The notion of following the Trail of Spiders is unsettling enough. It is disquieting enough. But what's really striking here is this idea that Harry and Ron are... are surrounded by this sphere of light and then an unending darkness. This is not terribly similar to the distru- uh, to the description of the forest that we got in the first book. And certainly, they have been following the spiders for 20 minutes. But in the first book, they trailed through the forest for who knows how long. And this is not to suggest that There is an inconsistency here, though I certainly think that there may well have been a revision in J.K. Rowling's imagination between the first and second books, and this is a darker and more dangerous take on, on the Forbidden Forest. But the Forbidden Forest itself is magical. The Forbidden Forest itself is the realm of fairy. 
as I said during our first season of Dear Mr. Potter, the forbidden forest is to Hogwarts as Hogwarts is to the Muggle world. It is otherworldly. So the fact that we cannot necessarily predict its geography, the fact that we cannot necessarily reconcile this description of the Forbidden Forest with the description that we get in the first book or the descriptions that we will get in subsequent books, the fact that we can't quite wrap our minds around the, the, the geography or even the, the ecosystem of the Forbidden Forest, that's not necessarily a problem because it doesn't necessarily work according to the rules of the mundane world. And that's true if we even think about its relationship with Hogwarts. As we've discussed before, Hogwarts' own geography seems to be somewhat malleable, somewhat fluid. We know for a fact that staircases can move, of course, but it also seems as though entire sections of, of the castle can move, can be realigned. You end up so often where you need to be rather than where you were intending to be. And we'll we'll get to specific rooms within the uh, specific rooms within Hogwarts that will have that unified purpose later in the series, of course. So this kind of fluid geography seems to be part of what we might expect from a magical space. And as we cross this threshold from Hogwarts into the Forbidden Forest, following this trail of spiders, led into darkness, into absolute hopelessness and absolute loneliness, and that I think is is vital. That is a, a trivial element to overlook. But one of the ways in which this visit to the Forbidden Forest is, is wildly different from the first is that here, Harry and Ron are effectively alone. They are cut off from their community, where in a sense, in the first book, they were actually representative of their community by going into the Forbidden Forest. So again, we see a different take on a similar idea. But there is something lurking here that is very different. Oh, Perspicuous Enigma asks an excellent question. Which was there first, the Forbidden Forest or the school? Either way, why on earth would you let a legion of schoolchildren near it? And of course, you don't let a legion of schoolchildren near it. You put a big red warning sign on it saying, Forbidden Forest, do not go in here, even you, Harry. Because of course, labeling things as forbidden does not attract children at all in the slightest. Um, yeah, let's talk about the nature of the Forbidden Forest in just a moment, because I have another slide here that's going to uh, that's going to give us a hook into that. But I think that's a really, really interesting question. And there's, I guess, in a broader sense, the question of Hogwarts itself. Because the castle was built a thousand years ago, but why was it built here? Why was it built in this remote location? Wouldn't it have been more convenient to build it somewhere closer to the major population centers, for example? Wouldn't it have made more sense to make it more central to at least the British Isles, if not to mainland Europe too? I mean, we're still at this point a little unsure about the other wizarding schools, if indeed there are other wizarding schools. So it's, it's an interesting question, a really interesting question, but it works better for me, I think, as, as metaphor. And we talked about this a little bit back in the first book as we tracked Harry's many thresholds, the many thresholds that particularly the first-year students cross as they arrive at Hogwarts for the first time. The first of those thresholds, of course, is Platform 9 and 3 quarters, but then we have the train itself. We have this extended liminal state where our characters are suspended between worlds. Then we have arriving at Hogsmeade, and we have the climbing of the path, and the traversing of the lake, and the movement through the subterranean caves, and we have the stairs, and we have the door. And then we're in Hogwarts. And that feels like a destination, but 
there's no real reason to believe that it is a destination any more than in a broader kind of metaphorical sense, any high school experience is a destination. You know, any high school experience, high school feels like the entire world when you are there, but that's only ever going to be a smaller part of a larger world. And I'm, I'm making the equation here between Hogwarts and high school because of the way that the British education systems are structured. That's not quite a one-to-one, -one, but I guess middle school would be, a, would be a closer point of comparison here. I think that metaphorically, the idea that you're going to continue or that you could continue to move cross threshold after threshold after threshold, move further from the comfort and, and security of the Mughal world, the, the simple, flat, dull, lifeless security of the Mughal world into greater and greater danger. Well, that does something very powerful for me, which is that rather than having, rather than, than, than presenting the wizarding world as the as the opposite of the Muggle world, as it were, rather than presenting this as, as a, a dualistic system. Instead, we're putting wizards right at the heart of what is a much more complex and, and, and sprawling system that they mediate between forces of, of much greater supernatural power and the Muggle world, that they exist in that, that, that middle space. I think that is a really interesting and, and provocative and evocative idea. So for me, this transition into the Forbidden Forest is absolutely, once again, about traversing into myth, into greater myth, into the realm of fairy. And we're going to see how that works in, in, in due course. Yeah. Kat says, I mean, I think one of the more resonant messages of Harry Potter as a whole is that nothing about growing up and entering the world is simple. Couldn't agree more. You're absolutely on the money there. And that is... I mean, <laughs> that is one of the ways in which Chamber of Secrets works as a reflection of the Philosopher's Stone, because now that it isn't new, Harry gets to understand. Harry gets to really move through a very similar adventure with the aid of uh, a much more refined and sophisticated perspective. That's going to be brutally torn apart, even as we move into the third book. By the time we get to Azkaban, we're looking at at a much darker world, and it's almost impossible to imagine the characters that inhabit that book inhabiting the Philosopher's Stone. It feels like a different world, and, and will continue to feel like a different world as we move from book to book, to, from story to story, through the rest of the series. And of course, J.K. Rowling has shown the, the most absolute commitment to this by continuing on the story, by our extended epilogue right at the end of the last book, by the, the writing of The Cursed Child, for example. She's well aware that, that nothing is ever static, that the world always changes. Which, not to get too far off into this nested tangent upon tangent upon tangent, but that is one of the reasons that I find the... The anachronistic medievalism of wizarding culture, completely fascinating, because that is almost at odds with our understanding of what it is to, to grow and to change. So I think that's a really great catch. Yeah. <laughs> oh, there is an analog here for the, uh, for the Outlander discussion. The, the, 
<laughs> there is a, there is a discussion here of the repeating phrase in Outlander. One of my favorite uh, one of the my favorite phrases that I came up with as we were discussing that book. There are always more wolves. That the uncivil world always exists beyond the lamplight of the civil. And of course, that's a very similar a very similar kind of visual metaphor for this experience as we travel into the Forbidden Forest and Harry's light, the light of Harry's wand becomes becomes more completely bounded on each side by the oppressive darkness. By the time we hit that point at which the darkness becomes a positive force almost rather than a negative force, begins to exert pressure upon this tiny fragile bubble of light and life here in the heart of the Forbidden Forest, we are reminded that civilization that peace, that comfort, that sanctity, that these things are only ever fleeting, that these things will never endure in the face of the wilderness beyond. And that may not be true in Hogwarts or in Diagon Alley or in the Muggle world, but here in the Forbidden Forest, it is. Let's, uh, let's push on. Oh, we're having some discussion here of the of the the spiders and the acromantulas. Yes, yes, yeah. I wish we'd had a little more insight into that. I wish we'd had a little more um, discussion of that because certainly we're we're including within the Exodus from Hogwarts apparently all spiders that that were inside the castle. So yeah, I would like to know a little more about about the connection between those those mundane spiders and uh, and the acromantulas themselves. We'll get to that in just a moment, but first we have to uh, first we have to basically continue this discussion about the nature of the Forbidden Forest by moving on to the very next slide and the reemergence of an old friend. Mr. Weasley's car was standing, empty, in the middle of a circle of thick trees under a roof of dense branches, its headlights ablaze. As Ron walked, open-mouthed toward it, it moved slowly toward him, exactly like a large turquoise dog greeting its owner. "'It's been here all the time,' said Ron delightedly, walking around the car. "'Look at it! The forest's turned it wild!' The sides of the car were scratched and smeared with mud. Apparently it had taken to trundling around the forest on its own. Fang didn't seem at all keen on it. He kept close to Harry, who could feel him quivering. His breathing slowing down again, Harry stuffed his wand back into his robes. "'And we thought it was going to attack us,' said Ron, leaning against the car and patting it. "'I wondered where it had gone.'" The phrase that I want to pull out here, the phrase that has really lit my imagination afire as I considered these chapters, is the last part of that second paragraph. Though, I mean, we should, of course observe, comment upon the last part of the first paragraph. The car trundled slowly toward him, exactly like a large turquoise dog greeting its owner. You know, exactly like a large turquoise dog with four wheels and headlights trundling out of, of a little canopy of branches. Exactly like that. Just just 100%. You would confuse this Ford Anglia that is living wild in the forest with a large turquoise dog any day of the week. I love the way that J.K. Rowling writes. But the interesting part to me is the last part of Ron's dialogue there. The forests turned it wild. That's such an interesting idea. Has the Forbidden Forest turned this car into something that it was not already? The last time we saw the car, it escaped from the Whomping Willow and headed off by itself. We had no real reason to believe that it would return, but here we are. Has the forest turned it wild? 
Does Ron mean that the forest, capital F, has turned it wild? Or does he mean that it has been turned wild by its exposure to the wild, this contrast between civilization and the natural, or in this case, increasingly supernatural world? Has the car been changed by its experience? And if not, where did this sentience come from? Where did this personality come from? Why is this car the way that it is? What do we think? Is there anything here that, that jumps out at you? Is there anything here that you can, you can retrieve from this tangle of, of detail? Zygmorphix asks an excellent question. How sentient is the car? Well, we're about to see during the rescue from the Acromantulas that the car is at least capable of a, a situational awareness that extends beyond its own kind of, of sensory input, that it, it's, it is, to all intents and purposes, alive. It is, to all intents and purposes, capable of some kind of thought, some kind of, of, of sentience, some kind of real awareness. It rescues Harry and Ron. That's not a reactive act. That is a proactive act. So that suggests not just an awareness, not just a sense of itself in the context of a larger world, but also a sense of, of moral obligation. I mean, why else would it take that action? I phrased that awkwardly, but that was a very intended question mark at the end of that sentence. Why else would it take that action? Are there other explanations that we can come up with that would, that would explain the car's presence here? And, and we mustn't forget either. Did it become this during its time in the forest, or was it always this? Is it possible that it wasn't the forest, capital F, that turned the Ford Anglia into this sentient living, breathing, living, breathing, neither living nor breathing, but but sentient and aware and active and, and conscious almost creature? Was it the Forbidden Forest that did that? Or was it Arthur Weasley? Where did this sentience come from? What do we think? Liz preempts me here on Twitter. Do you suppose the Angli had a bit of Arthur's curiosity and personality because he enchanted it? I do think that is possible. I do think that is 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 very possible. And I want to... I have tried to build an argument whereby we draw a direct connection between the Ford Anglia and Arthur Weasley, where we see the car as as directly representative of Arthur Weasley, because that does all kinds of metaphorical things that I really like. Here, alone in the forest, Ron stumbles upon a relic of his father, and that relic of his father rescues Ron and Harry from the Acromantulas. I mean, that's that's really powerful. That's a really strong idea, particularly in this book, a book... Well, the entire series is preoccupied with fathers and sons, of course, but this book is preoccupied with fathers and sons in a really interesting and, and oblique kind of way. So I would love for the car to be representative of Arthur Weasley in that sense, and it may well be. I'm not sure that I can really make that argument with, with any kind of precision, with any kind of real focus, but certainly we might infer that it is Arthur Weasley's enchantment that has done this to the Ford Anglia rather than the Forbidden Forest itself, particularly because, of course, the first act of sentience that the car displayed was escaping from Ron and Harry and the Whomping Willow. And even then, that wasn't simply an act of self-preservation, but it was 
mindful enough, conscious enough to dump out their luggage before it drove off into the wilds. So we can infer some interesting things from that too. Yeah. All right. Yes. And we got a, okay. We've got a few people uh, coming up with the idea that, it, that it's Arthur. Yes. Yeah. And I like very much the notion that, that enchantment, that enchantment in general is a creative act, that it isn't a mechanical act, because of course that takes us into all kinds of interesting spaces with Arthur Weasley and his relationship with Muggle artifacts. Trying to enchant a Muggle artifact changes its nature absolutely, because you are, you are turning the strictly mechanistic into something that is unique by virtue of your own creative craft. This is... I mean, not unlike the kind of art that you will find, you know, that is created from from reclaimed objects or the kind of art that you will find that, that wherein something commonplace is transformed, you know, into into a, a deliberate and conscious piece of art. There's something of that to the idea of enchantment, too. I, I like that. I, I really do. I'm not sure that I can I can push any further down that particular that particular road without becoming completely detached from the text that we're trying to study. But I do like that very much. I'm also somewhat taken by the idea that the forbidden forest is forbidden because the forest itself is an entity, is is uh, is magical, is is mystical almost. And we've talked about Hogwarts as a being, Hogwarts as a thing unto itself. And there is a sense, a palpable sense, particularly in the first book, but I think it holds up even as you move into Chamber of Secrets, that Hogwarts is aware, that it is a thing. The castle itself has at least a presence. So it may well be that the forest has an awareness, a presence. I mean, in part, I can't imagine the ecosystem of the Forbidden Forest. I can't imagine how these spiders that apparently live 20, 25 minutes from the fringes of the forest manage to conduct themselves alongside the unicorns that we know live here, the werewolves that are rumored to live here, the centaurs that we know live here, as well as, presumably, a normal, viable, arboreal ecosystem. Presumably, this is also just a forest, as well as being a super magical forest. Does that work? Are we supposed to believe that? I guess that's the thought experiment, right? If you set off from Hagrid's hut and you walk toward the Forbidden Forest and you just keep walking, will you pass through the Forbidden Forest and back out into another part of the Wizarding World, back into the mundane Muggle realm? Or will you just keep going? Will you find on the other side of the Forbidden Forest something even stranger than the Forbidden Forest, something even more distant from Muggle experience? Possibly. In fairy tales, of course, that's exactly how it would work. If this were strictly a fairy tale story, that's exactly what we would expect to, to, to happen. You would move beyond the Forbidden Forest into something even more metaphorical, into something even more abstracted from, from direct personal experience. You would move into the realm of the dead, or you would move into, you know, heaven and the afterlife. There would be some kind of, of even more abstract kind of existence on the other side of the Forbidden Forest, or... Then you get to the Forbidden Desert, hang a left at the Forbidden Desert, you know, go down the Forbidden Canyon, and then you'll get to the Land of the Dead or whatever's on the other side. Yeah. And Kat asks, this was what I was alluding to, what I was alluding to earlier. How could the Room of Requirement exist if Hogwarts doesn't have sentience? Yes. 
that's an excellent question. You're right. Okay, let's um good. <laughs> Jeff says Muggle Artifact is not a band name I would want for myself, but I think I'd go see them. I think we could put together a whole a whole uh we could put together a whole festival here. We could put together a, a, a Coachella. We could do something really cool here with, with nothing but bands inspired by Harry Potter things. Kind of like that idea. Shout out in the YouTube chat with your favorite Harry Potter things. <laughs> Ron's Spellotaped Wand, I think, would be a great name for a band. Um, yes, good. Oh, Zygmorphix. Zygmorphix is trying to lure me into talking about Tolkien. We will absolutely make reference to the Forbidden Forest when we get to the Old Forest, when we start talking about Old Man Willow, and when we start talking about Tom Bombadil. Absolutely. Yes, good. It's interesting. Well, okay, I'll indulge this this far and, and, and no further, though I would, of course, like to talk about this at great length. The Old Forest is explicitly a relic. Um... The Old Forest existed before the coming of the Hobbits, before the coming of man, and has retreated over the millennia to, to this relatively small patch of, of woodland. Do we think the same is true of the Forbidden Forest? Was the Forbidden Forest the primordial state of, again, the Wizarding World or the Muggle World? Do we still believe, do we still feel intuitively that the Wizarding World and the Muggle World genuinely coexist, that they are, that there is a completely consistent geography, that without active charms preventing the discovery of Hogwarts or the discovery of Hogsmeade, for example, the discovery of Diagon Alley, that we could simply walk from the Muggle World into the Wizarding World and back again? Or is that threshold more metaphorical than that? Is it more inherently magical than that? Is it more otherworldly than that? And that leads me to um, <laughs> that leads me to the last thing that I want to discuss. I think about the uh, about the conflict between the the civil and the savage, about the conflict between the tamed and the wild, as it were. Um, Liz, actually, who was with us here on on Twitter as we discussed this, was kind enough last night to release to Twitter. A, a, a reading of a John Donne poem. John Donne, one of the great metaphysical poets, one of the great romantic poets, one of my absolute favorite poets. But that got me thinking about, about romance, about capital R romance, about this take on the wild world as pure, as sacred, that the touch of man sullies rather than improves that we do not by by creating roads and and i don't know all the other things that that that, that mankind has created that, that by creating towns and railroads and all of the many you know artifacts of of human life on the planet that we have not really improved from its natural state we have not made things better we have simply made things more artificial and therefore removed the experience of of connecting with the natural world and there is a sense i think it may be possible to to distill a sense in which the forbidden forest exists as a purer vision of the magical world and that again reflects interestingly on the idea of of medievalism throughout the wizarding world that one of the reasons that wizards don't live in skyscrapers one of the reasons that wizards keep this very kind of of very anachronistic from our perspective, but very simple and very down-to-earth kind of existence is that they are 
more connected, more directly connected to the world in its pure nascent state. And that maybe there is something in the power of that, that authentic savagery, that authentic savagery isn't quite the right word, but, but that, that authentic wilderness that is magical, that we're, we're drawing some kind of metaphor there too. So that was my last thought on, on the Forbidden Forest. What do we have to say here? Sabrina says, oh, this is as we're discussing, uh, yeah, this is as we're discussing wands. Sabrina says, we'll see what it's like using another person's wand in a later book, and it doesn't appear to go well, though I guess it's still workable. Yes, we're going to circle around to that. Good. Um, yes. Oh, Carla's leaving us. Goodbye, Carla. I'm sorry to see you go. Yes. Okay, good. I haven't missed too much as I've been scrolling around. All right. And Evelyn says, I find it strange. And of course, we're, we're already uh, looking ahead to, to Ron's broken wand. Yes. Evelyn says, I find it strange that Ron's parents weren't informed that he needed a new wand. And Lauren says, Ron specifically doesn't tell them. But that does kind of raise the question of, of Ron's academic pursuits through the year. Presumably, he needs that wand for his actual classes. So I don't know. Perhaps he's able to, to, to borrow a generic kind of wand. I don't know if they have... Um, just multi-purpose ones that they could pass out. Yeah. All right. Let's, uh, excellent, excellent, excellent. <laughs> Jeff says, uh, I think Muggle Artifact would be like if 90s Weezer lamented their lack of magical abilities. I don't know about you, Jeff, but it always struck me that 90s Weezer lamented their lack of magical abilities. Let's uh, push on here because we have to get to know Aragog. That is the reason that we are here. We follow... I guess we don't, actually. We cut hard from meeting the Ford Anglia to capture by the spiders. We're going to talk about the Hobbit very soon, of course. And they are delivered into the presence of the the ancient and blind Acromantula Aragog that Hagrid smuggled out of the school 50 years ago. So you never, never attacked anyone? Never, croaked the old spider. It would have been my instinct, but out of respect for Hagrid, I never harmed a human. The body of the girl who was killed was discovered in a bathroom. I never saw any part of the castle but the cupboard in which I grew up. Our kind, like the dark and the quiet. But then, did you know what did kill the girl, said Harry, because whatever it is, it's back and attacking people again. His words were drowned out by a loud outbreak of clicking and the rustling of many long legs shifting angrily. Large, black shapes shifted all around him. The thing that lives in the castle, said Aragog, is an ancient creature we spiders fear above all others. Well do I remember how I pleaded with Hagrid to let me go when I, when I sensed the beast moving about the school. What is it? said Harry urgently. More loud clicking, more rustling. The spiders seemed to be closing in. We do not speak of it, said Aragog fiercely. We do not name it. I never even told Hagrid the name of that dread creature, though he asked me many times. Circling back around to, uh, to Aragog. Circling back around to the flashback sequence that we were given, thanks to Tom Riddle. Circling back around to the story with the dragon in the first book. Circling back around to Hagrid's preoccupation with incredibly dangerous creatures. It is 
enormously powerful and weirdly satisfying to find Aragog here living in a sense the kind of life that this vast you know <laughs> monstrous spider would have lived we're told as we read this passage that that Hagrid actually managed to smuggle a female acromantula out to the forest and that is why Aragog has this vast and extended family but there is a sense in which Hagrid has again found a kind of balance by putting things where they belong. That Aragog didn't belong in the cellars and the basements and the sewers beneath Hogwarts. That he does belong, in a sense, this may not be his natural habitat, of course, one would assume not, but he does belong, in a sense, here in the Forbidden Forest and has managed to make a life that owes nothing to Hagrid beyond personal connection. And we see that in the immediate aftermath of this scene, when Aragog's children are going to feed on Harry and Ron. That's a really powerful moment, and it's the kind of powerful moment that was really striking to me the first time that I read the book, because it felt so atypical. It felt so unexpected. Because Harry has already... Harry has already performed due diligence here. Harry has, yes, yes, absolutely trespassed into the forest. Yes, Harry has absolutely been captured and been delivered to the 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 king of, of the enemy force here, that he has been delivered unto the 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 embodiment of authority here in, in the spider community. But Harry has done what he was supposed to do. Harry has done what Disney movies tell us would be appropriate here. He has said, no, 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 I'm a friend of Hagrid. Therefore, your trust of Hagrid, loyalty to Hagrid, friendship with Hagrid are transferred to me. Thank you. Let me ask you about the basilisk underneath Hogwarts. The moment at the end of this exchange where not only is Aragog powerless to stop his brood from attacking and feasting upon Harry and Ron, but actually seems disinterested in the possibility of doing so, is, is a really cold moment. It's a profound moment because it's saying something very powerful about the bounds of the wizarding world. It's another little... It's another suggestion. It's another, uh, it's another brick in the wall of argument that we are building that wizards are by no means the pinnacle of the wizarding world. We've talked about the goblins and we've talked about the house elves and we've speculated about the dwarves too, who were who were um, brought into Hogwarts to serve as cupids by Gilderoy Lockhart. There are other races out there. There are other kinds of being out there. The centaurs in the Forbidden Forest, of course, have an entirely separate, uh, separated culture. They have an entirely unique kind of life. Once again, there's the suggestion here that, no, this is not the wizard's world that they are merely a part, that they are an interface, that they are a point of connection between the magical realm and the muggle realm, that they exist not at the other end of the spectrum, but actually right there on the fulcrum. They exist as the midpoint between beings like the Acromantulas and beings like the Dursleys, I guess. Those are pretty much the two polar opposite things that you'd encounter in the Harry Potter universe, right? Yes. <laughs> Oh, Linda says, Harry Potter band names. I'm starting Wingardium Leviosca. 
That is beautiful. That is beautiful, Linda. Thank you for that. <laughs> Good. Yes. And the discussion here in the YouTube chat is, of course, running away with me. So I do need to find a better way of keeping up with this. Oh, Wizardheart says in the Discord chat here, if the, if the Forbidden Forest, excuse me, if the Forbidden Forest is to Hogwarts as Hogwarts is to the mundane world, how perfect is it that Harry and Ron ride out of it in an enchanted muggle artifact that the forest has animated somehow? Yes, I mean, we, we talked a little the degree to which the forest may or may not have animated it, but regardless, you're absolutely right. The fact that it's a relic of the muggle world that, that rescues them from this darkest of, of dark places and pulls them back to the relative mundanity of Hogwarts. That's, that's a beautiful catch. Thank you for that. Good. Yes, and we're already moving on here in the YouTube chat, looking ahead to, to Riddle and the Chamber of Secrets itself. And um, wow, I am running... I am running very, very over here. So let's pick up the pace. Um, Harry and Ron are, of course, rescued by the Ford Anglia, dragged back out of the forest, and again, once more, allowed to let go on the fringes of the forest while the car goes off to continue its happy life, whatever that happy life may look like. I am, I am absolutely crazy about the... <laughs> what is on the one hand... Okay, so on the one hand, the Anglia is is ridiculous. It is one of the more conspicuous elements in J.K. Rowling's world building. It is one of the more goofy, one of the more, see, goofy isn't quite right either, because it's not silly, but it is genuinely otherworldly. It is genuinely surprising. Genuinely, in a sense, you know, lowercase m, genuinely magical. I love that it is present in this story as a reminder that even as Harry and his friends are, are learning all there is to learn about magic, there are still weird and fascinating and curious and unknown things out there. That's all fantastic. But when we tie that back to this notion of, of sentience and awareness and personality, when we tie this back to these questions that we've discussed about where the car came from, about wherein did its, its personality arise? You know, was it created entirely by Arthur Weasley? Is it fair to say that Arthur Weasley has effectively, by proxy at least, or not even by proxy, perhaps, rescued his son and his son's best friend? That's fascinating. The idea that it has come to sentience within the Forbidden Forest, because there's something about the Forbidden Forest that is powerful. And perhaps there's no coincidence that that the first encounter we had with the car sentience came following the encounter with the Whomping Willow. Of course, we're back to trees again. I don't think it is stated that the Whomping Willows come from the Forbidden Forest, but they might. There might be some relic of magic there. There is a unity here that I just find startling. And this is one of those, like, surprisingly frequent moments when I feel obliged to pay appropriate respect to J.K. Rowling's skill as a storyteller. That these stories are not simple. They are not straightforward. They are beguilingly and bewitchingly complex. And it really doesn't take much thought and much study or much discussion. As thrilled as I am to have all this discussion with you guys, it doesn't take much of this kind of discussion to unearth some really rich and rewarding pieces of interpretive analysis. So this is why, you know, despite the fact that I'm going to be looking at Tolkien next year, we're definitely going to be discussing the third Harry Potter book because, guys, it only gets better from here on out, let me tell you. All right, let's wrap this up and move into the next chapter because um, 
So we return to Hogwarts. Harry and Ron have a brief discussion, a fairly one-sided discussion, in which Harry realizes slash decides that Myrtle must have been the girl who was murdered. Then we move into chapter 16. Professor McGonagall tells the students that their exams are imminent. A reminder even now that this is still in part a school story. And in fact, I don't think I pulled out a slide discussing this specifically. Um... I didn't, in fact, pull out a slide discussing this specifically. If you're in the mood to reread chapter 16, take a look at the ways in which the the closing of Hogwarts, the, the end of the school story, in a sense, is presented in, oh God, nothing short of apocalyptic language. That the end of Hogwarts would be the end of Harry's experience. And that's not just true in the sense that, of course, he would be returned to the Dursleys, that his life would go on. Presumably his use of magic would go on. Presumably he'd be able to, to maybe even move in with the Weasleys and everything would be just fine. There are clearly industries out there who employ young wizards. Clearly there are, you know, there is a wizard community outside of Hogwarts, but because we're still anchored in part in the school story, the closing of Hogwarts is the end. That's it. We're never going to see Minerva Minerva. We're never going to see Minerva McGonagall, excuse me, um, quite as bleak as she is at that moment. So if you circle back around to this, uh, do go read chapter 16 again and, and pay close attention to that. So Professor McGonagall tells them that their exams are coming and that the Mandrakes are finally ready for harvesting. But before we get to that, Ginny Weasley has something to tell Harry. I've got to tell you something, Ginny mumbled, carefully not looking at Harry. What is it? said Harry. Ginny looked as though she couldn't find the right words. What? said Ron. Ginny opened her mouth, but no sound came out. Harry leaned forward and spoke quietly so that only Ginny and Ron could hear him. Is it something about the Chamber of Secrets? Have you seen something? Someone acting oddly? Ginny drew a deep breath and, at that precise moment, Percy Weasley appeared, looking tired and wan. If you've finished eating, I'll take that seat, Ginny. I'm starving. I've only just come off patrol duty. Ginny jumped up as though her chair had just been electrified, gave Percy a fleeting, frightened look, and scampered away. I included this slide partly because I am, as you probably know by now, pretty crazy about Ginny Weasley. <laughs> I am I am a defender of, of Ginny Weasley, but mostly I included this because I wanted to pay attention to just how beautifully handled the Percy Weasley subplot is throughout this entire book. You would be absolutely forgiven for being completely sure at this point that Percy is somehow connected to the Chamber of Secrets, that Percy is somehow connected to the heir of Slytherin. The way that we handle Percy's split loyalty, the way that we handle his preoccupation, the way that we handle his, his obvious secrecy, and the way that we use him as a means of pulling focus and attention away from Ginny is just masterfully done. Every time we might have cause to look at Ginny with suspicion, that cause is immediately overshadowed. Sometimes that's by Percy, sometimes that's by, by Draco, but it's always pulled away. I really like the way, just from, from a craft perspective, from a technical perspective, I really like the way that this, this subplot with Percy is constructed here. 
Um, oh, there's a good conversation happening in the YouTube chat here about uh, about uh, Tom Riddle and the Muggleborns. I'm going to have to scroll back through this. Yes. <laughs> Phoebe says, early books Malfoy always seems all mouth and no trousers, to be honest. He says he wants people to die, but I doubt his 12-year-old self would actually be happy about it. That is a really, that's a really great catch. Um, I like, I, I like looking at Draco in the context of who he will become and in the context, of course, of his father, who is absolutely the, the most powerful influence on his life. Yeah, good. And Zygmorphic says, I honestly never suspected Percy even for a moment. And that's completely fine. I didn't suspect Percy either the first time that I read the book. It didn't occur to me to suspect Percy. But if you were of a mind to suspect Percy, if you somehow came into the possession of Chamber of Secrets minus the last two chapters, if you had everything up to the end of this week's reading and no more, and you had time to study it and pour over it, if you had time to really take it apart and figure out what was going on, you could be justified in leaping to the conclusion that Percy is, if not personally responsible, at least tangentially connected to the whole endeavor. I love the way it's constructed. Yeah. Good. <laughs> All right. Um, yes, we do need to pick up the pace here a little bit because we've got a couple more slides. And this next slide is actually one of my favorites. So the moment is interrupted and Harry and Ron decide to go and question Myrtle en route, though they are discovered by... Professor McGonagall. And you know that I can't pass up the opportunity to include an awesome McGonagall scene. Oh, Kate says here in the Twitter chat, as a 10-year-old reading Chamber of Secrets, I was sure it was Percy. Kate, that is that is some advanced uh, detective work there. Good job. So this is the scene where Minerva McGonagall discovers uh, Harry and Ron in the corridor on their way to talk with Myrtle. They let the rest of the Gryffindors draw ahead of them, then darted down a side passage and hurried off toward Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. But just as they were congratulating each other on their brilliant scheme, Potter! Weasley! What are you doing? It was Professor McGonagall, and her mouth was the thinnest of thin lines. We were... we, we, we were... Ron stammered. We were, we were going to, 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 to go and see Hermione, said Harry. Ron and Professor McGonagall both looked at him. We haven't seen her for ages, Professor, Harry went on hurriedly, treading on Ron's foot, and we thought we'd sneak into the hospital wing, you know, and tell her that the mandrakes are nearly ready and, uh, not to worry. Professor McGonagall was still staring at him, and for a moment, Harry thought she was going to explode. But when she spoke, it was in a strangely croaky voice. Of course, she said, and Harry, amazed, saw a tear glistening in her beady eye. Of course, I realize this has all been hardest on the friends of those who have been... I, I, I quite understand. Yes, Potter, of course you may visit Miss Granger. I will inform Professor Binns where you've gone. Tell Madame Pomfrey I've given my permission. Harry and Ron walked away, hardly daring to believe that they'd avoided detention. As they turned the corner, they distinctly heard Professor McGonagall blow her nose. That, said Ron fervently, was the best story you've ever come up with. This is, I, I love this. This is such a beautifully and unexpectedly rich piece of, of, of prose. From the simplicity of the thinnest of thin lines, or I mean, even, even prior to that. But just as they were congratulating each other on their brilliant scheme, M-dash into interruptive dialogue, that's <laughs> just beautifully done. That's perfectly straightforward. That's, that's almost cartoon writing right there. 
It was Professor McGonagall, and her mouth was the thinnest of thin lines. I love that so much. But then we swing into something very unexpected. Why is McGonagall so touched by Ron and Harry's loyalty to their friend? Why does this obviously mean as much to her as it does? Now, she's clearly at this point under a huge amount of stress. Dumbledore is gone from Hogwarts. She is on the brink of the school being closed forever, on the brink, perhaps, of genuinely terrible things happening to one or more of her students. Terrible things are afoot. But this seems to me to be personal. And I couldn't help but think, as as I was thinking about this this passage, that, of course, Minerva McGonagall is the Hermione of her group. When we consider the power trio formed by McGonagall and Dumbledore and Hagrid, she is the Hermione. Not just because she's the girl, but for many, many, many other reasons. She maps beautifully to Hermione. And seeing the courage and the loyalty of these young men in the defense of their friend. I can imagine being moved by that. I'm a little moved by that. That works for me. But of course, there is something a little bittersweet about it, too. And let's not say that I I never want to, you know, affectionately slap Ron around the back of the head as we read these books. There are a few times when that seems like an appropriate response. Just just a little, you know, gentle cuff to the back of the head. Not chastisement, but, you know, just just an acknowledgement that sometimes he is not always the greatest. Um, When he says that was the best story you've ever come up with, I feel guilt and shame by proxy here. I feel wretched on behalf of Harry and Ron because, of course, they weren't going to visit Hermione. Harry comes up with that story on the spur of the moment, and they are praised for it. They move Professor McGonagall with this story, but that is not actually what they were going to do. Now, it may well be argued that the thing that they were going to do is more productive, is actually more likely to help Hermione in the long run than going to the infirmary to visit their petrified friend. But when McGonagall responds with this this depth of feeling, is obviously so personally touched by their gesture. I don't know, I kind of feel a little bad on their behalf that they weren't actually thinking of going to Hermione to tell her that the Mandrakes were ready and that she was going to be okay. Or at least to tell her that tests are coming up. Emmy says here in the uh, YouTube chat, and now I'm wishing McGonagall was more of a personal mentor for Hermione. Maybe if we had a book from Hermione's point of view, she is. I would love more of that relationship. That is one of the the relationships that uh, I think is incredibly rich with potential and never really gets the exploration that that it could withstand. Yeah. And Christina says on Twitter, I think Hermione would prefer they solve the mystery than visit her. And I think you're absolutely right. Hermione, of course, would. Because Hermione is how should we say this, Uh, goal-oriented, let's say that. But one of the things that Ron does to to balance Hermione, to to return to this idea of the power trio as the ethos, logos, pathos kind of, you know, triplicate structure here, one of the things that Ron does is balance Hermione's logos with his pathos. He wants to bring a little emotional depth, these softer skills to their their relationship. So, yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, Amy says, doesn't McGonagall go get Hermione the Time Turner? I bet that mentorship is there. You know, I'm going to be paying new attention to those scenes when we get to them. That's that's really good call. Yeah. Good. Yes. Oh, and Catherine uh, nodded at that mere moments ago. Yes, a little less specifically, but yeah, you're right. <laughs> All right. So, uh, given no choice, Harry and Ron discover in the infirmary when visiting Hermione that in her petrified grip, there is a page torn from a book. It was a page torn from a very old library book. Harry smoothed it out eagerly, and Ron leaned close to read it, too. Of the many fearsome beasts and monsters that roam our land, there is none more curious or more deadly than the basilisk known also as the King of Serpents. This snake, which may reach gigantic size and live many hundreds of years, is born from a chicken's egg hatched beneath a toad. Its methods of killing are most wondrous, for aside from its deadly and venomous fangs, the basilisk has a murderous stare, and all who are fixed with the beam of its eye shall suffer instant death. Spiders flee before the basilisk, for it is their mortal enemy and the basilisk flees only from the crowing of the rooster, which is fatal to it. This is, um... <laughs> this is actually really interesting in terms of the mythology of basilisks. I'm laughing there because uh, Liz has just tweeted, completely petrified and still saving their asses. Hashtag Team Hermione. I could not agree more. We're going to circle back around to that in just one moment. This is an interesting version of the basilisk myth. And basilisks go back in, in Western mythology all the way to Pliny the Elder's Natural History, which is a volume written in 79 AD, where he describes in terms not entirely dissimilar to these, the nature of the basilisk. The basilisk is called the King of Serpents because it is reputed to have a crown-shaped crest at the back of its head. Stories of the basilisk have also kind of crossed over with stories of the cockatrice or cockatrice. The basilisk traditionally is alleged to be hatched by a cockerel from the egg of a serpent or a toad, usually a serpent. So that is a serpent egg incubated by a chicken, okay? That's how you get a basilisk, not the version that we get here. The account that is given here that is a chicken egg hatched beneath a toad, that is traditionally the way that you end up with a cockatrice, which was hatched in the reverse fashion. Because of this, basilisks are not actually traditionally, in, in mythology, are not traditionally concerned with roosters or with cockerels, but rather with weasels. In fact, the traditional basilisk's uh, weakness, its, its, uh, its Achilles heel, as it were, is the smell of the weasel. It was said that in order to defeat a basilisk, you had to track it to its lair, which would be a simple hole in the ground surrounded on all sides by a circle of devastation and withered plant life, and throw into that hole a weasel. The scent of the weasel would kill the basilisk, and the weasel would wander out by itself perfectly fine sometime later. It's a pretty good myth, as myths go. Here's my problem with this. I am not a fan of this particular uh, beat in the story. It feels a little heavy-handed in terms of the exposition. I don't feel that we necessarily need... You know, this is... In terms of exposition, this is the Webster's Dictionary defines a basilisk as... 
this is the you know the clear and uncluttered approach to to exposition that you might expect from a less skilled writer. J.K. Rowling traditionally has a better approach to exposition and to the the sharing of stories, at least. The biggest problem here, though, is that I don't believe for a second that Hermione Granger would tear a page out of a library book. I don't believe for a second that, given that she had been petrified by some malign force, that the page that she is holding crumpled in her hand would be overlooked, that no one at any point would notice that page until Harry and Ron show up in the infirmary. I'm genuinely not sure what to make of it. I find it less than satisfying, and certainly... I have to come up with some kind of headcanon explanation that what Hermione actually found was a loose page that perhaps someone else had already torn the page from the book and Hermione found it, discovered it, whatever it was, and was was returning with it when she was attacked by the basilisk. But, yeah, it's, it's a strange beat, and I don't think it's an entirely necessary one. I kind of wish we'd had a better means of, of revealing this information to Harry. Yeah. As, as Kate says on Twitter, Hermione would, would have brought the whole book, not torn out the page. Yes, couldn't agree more. And here in the YouTube chat, oh gosh, we're talking about the, uh, yeah, mongooses, yes. Wow, what an interesting idea. Yes, of course, that the weasel is the enemy of the, uh, the weasel is the enemy of the basilisk because mongooses or mongeese, I've never been quite sure of the plural, that mongooses or mongeese kill snakes. Fascinating. Yeah. And Amy says, Harry and Ron's fib to McGonagall turns out to really be their best idea because otherwise they would not have found this information clenched tightly in Hermione's fist. Yes, there is a certain amount of contrivance there too. Sure. Yeah. Good. Good, good, good. All right. Let's, um, let's observe the formalities and then we'll move into the final part of our reading. This is the moment. This is the moment when everything comes together. Harry finally understands exactly what is going on and we explore, we return to all of the incidental details of the, uh, of the, uh, the mystery that we've seen so far and explain them away. Ron, he breathed. This is it. This is the answer. The monster in the chamber is a basilisk, a giant serpent. That's why I've been hearing that voice all over the place, and nobody else has heard it. It's because I understand parcel tongue. Harry looked up at the beds around him. The basilisk kills people by looking at them, but no one's died because no one looked it straight in the eye. Colin saw it through his camera. The basilisk burned up all the film inside it, but Colin just got petrified. Justin, Justin must have seen the basilisk through nearly headless Nick. Nick got the full blast of it, but he couldn't die again, and... And Hermione and that Ravenclaw prefect were found with a mirror next to them. Hermione had just realized the monster was a basilisk. I bet you anything she warned the first person she met to look around corners with the mirror first. And that girl pulled out her mirror and... Ron's jaw had dropped. And Mrs. Norris? He whispered eagerly. Harry thought hard, picturing the scene on the night of Halloween. The water, he said slowly. The flood from moaning Myrtle's bathroom. I bet you Mrs. Norris only saw the reflection. And that's how we wrap up the mystery. It is a really well-composed series of events that require only the suspension of disbelief that not one single person looked directly at the basilisk. That not one single person was, was hit with the full force of the basilisk's power. That may seem a little... A little contrived, perhaps that may seem may seem a conceit, a convenience, as it were. 
but it gets us where we need to be and and at least each in, uh, at least each incidental incident if i can abuse the english language to that extent each each incidence of of basilisk attack was fairly well composed was fairly well put together i particularly like the use of nearly headless neck i think that having the basilisk's power muted by the presence of the ghost is is a really interesting one and and, and a really rewarding thematic uh idea too so all the loose ends are taken care of. Harry has explained them all for the benefit of Ron and, of course, for the benefit of the reader. And this is where we move into the final phase of the story. A magical alarm is sounded. Harry and Ron run to the staff room, hoping to tell McGonagall what they have discovered. And let's not, I suppose, breeze past that too quickly. If we rewind to the end of last week's reading, or the last session's reading, I should say, we have this moment where Dumbledore points out to no one in particular that his name will not be forgotten as long as some remain loyal to him and help will always come to those who ask for it. Ron and Harry, of course, do not ask for help. Ron and Harry, of course, take Dumbledore's cryptic message to mean, well, you should definitely continue exploring by yourselves. You should definitely just go into the Forbidden Forest by yourself. Do not, and I want to emphasize this as clearly as I can, ask anyone for help. Don't misread my intent to that degree where you would go to one of the many qualified professionals that we have on staff and ask for their assistance in this matter. No, it takes the final showdown here at Hogwarts for Harry and Ron to even consider going to the staff room to ask McGonagall for help to tell her what they know. And even when they arrive, they don't do it because they overhear the conversation about Ginny being taken directly into the chamber of secrets. McGonagall says that this is the end of Hogwarts, while the other professors volunteer Gilderoy Lockhart to venture into the Chamber of Secrets and save the day. He appears to agree, but then when Harry and Ron decide that actually instead of telling McGonagall, who we trust, we should tell the truth to Lockhart, who we don't, they rush off to his office and discover the truth. You mean you're running away, said Harry disbelievingly, after all that stuff you did in your books. Books can be misleading, said Lockhart delicately. You wrote them, Harry shouted. My dear boy, said Lockhart, straightening, straightening up and frowning at Harry. Do use your common sense. My books wouldn't have sold half as well if people didn't think I'd done all those things. No one wants to read about some ugly old Armenian warlock, even if he did save a village from werewolves. He'd look dreadful on the front cover. No dress sense at all. And the witch who banished the abandoned banshee had a hairy chin. I mean, come on. So you've just been taking credit for what a load of other people have done, said Harry incredulously. Harry, Harry, said Lockhart, shaking his head impatiently. It's not nearly as simple as that. There was work involved. I had to track those people down, ask them exactly how they managed to do what they did. Then I had to put a memory charm on them so they wouldn't remember doing it. If there's one thing I pride myself on, it's my memory charms. No, it's been a lot of work, Harry. It's not all book signings and publicity photos, you know. You want fame. You have to be prepared for a long, hard slog. The turn of Gilderoy Lockhart is, I think, um, certainly one of the best-regarded in 
the series, certainly in the first half of the series. I think this is this is a powerful story, and it's not simply a powerful story because it is a good Harry Potter story. This is actually a great story in and of itself. You could transplant Gilderoy Lockhart into another fantasy story. You could transplant Gilderoy Lockhart into another story of another genre. You could take the Gilderoy Lockhart story and kind of distill it down aphoristically and create a little fable about Gilderoy Lockhart. It is a great turn. And it's a story that is, again, beautifully constructed in the background of our primary plot. And it's been the elephant in the room, of course, as we've been moving through the book. Lockhart is the worst. He steals stories. He wipes memories. He is unjustly celebrated. His fame is unearned. But given the stress that we've put on Lockhart's fame, and given the stress that we put on the connection between Lockhart and Harry, fame earned and unearned, deserved and undeserved, what do we make of this? Is there a deeper point being made about Harry himself? Is there a deeper point being made about Harry's connections with ambition? Harry has stumbled through really no fault of his own into a life of celebrity which would be interesting in and of itself, but we also continually draw Harry back toward Slytherin and toward the virtues embodied and prized by House Slytherin. Fame is a difficult concept for Harry because as a Slytherin student, he would have the ambition that would drive him down, possibly a very similar path to the path taken by Gilderoy Lockhart. Though, I do think that that Lockhart's desire to obscure the truth and propagate his own lies and deceits do make him a a fascinatingly uh, archetypal Ravenclaw bad guy. I find that really interesting. So what is Harry to do with fame? Is fame always bad? Well, clearly not. Because Dumbledore is incredibly famous. We know that not just from our time at Hogwarts, but from Harry's first encounter with Ron on the Hogwarts Express. His first encounter with a chocolate frog. We know that Dumbledore is arguably the most famous wizard. Perhaps even more famous than Gilderoy Lockhart. Perhaps they don't walk in the same circles. Perhaps they're not famous in exactly the same way. But he is renowned. So what does Harry's future look like? Does it look like the path of Gilderoy Lockhart? Well, I don't think there's any reason to believe that that's the case. I'm not sure that the book itself is asserting that Harry's in any danger in that sense. But we must be wary of the path that leads to fame. We must be wary of sacrificing one's real integrity for public acclaim. And that's really what has happened to Gilderoy Lockhart. I guess we'll talk about this a little later after he uh, after he is on the receiving end of an Obliviate spell. But in a very powerful sense, though he has gone out into the world and stolen stories, stolen memories, removed truth from the world, the person who has been most obscured by his action is not the Armenian warlock, nor the witch who killed the Bandan Banshee. The person who is most obscured, the person who is most affected by Gilderoy Lockhart's lie is Gilderoy Lockhart, because he is now nothing but his celebrity. 
He is now nothing but this fatuous, grinning liar who, who swans around Hogwarts claiming to know everything that there is to know. I am not completely devoid of sympathy for Gilderoy Lockhart. We'll talk more about that as we get to the end of the book next week. Let's move on to our final slide here for the evening. As Lockhart tries to wipe Harry and Ron's memory of his confession, Harry disarms him. Hey, you never know how useful an Expelliarmus spell is going to be. Then he takes him to Myrtle's bathroom, where Harry gives the command in Parseltongue that opens the passage to the Chamber of Secrets. They find the shed skin of an enormous creature, and Lockhart seizes the opportunity to again try to wipe Harry's memory. As I advance to the next slide. Harry jumped forward, but too late. Lockhart was straightening up, panting, Ron's wand in his hand and his gleaming smile back on his face. The adventure ends here, boys, he said. I shall take a bit of this skin back up to the school, tell them I was too late to save the girl and that you two tragically lost your minds at the sight of her mangled body. Say goodbye to your memories. He raised Ron's spellotaped wand high over his head and yelled, Obliviate! The wand exploded with the force of a small bomb. Harry flung his arms over his head and ran, slipping over the coils of snakeskin, out of the way of great chunks of tunnel ceiling that were thundering to the floor. Next moment, he was standing alone, gazing at a solid wall of broken rock. Ron! he shouted. Are you okay? Ron! I'm here! came, Ron, came Ron's muffled voice from behind the rockfall. I'm okay! This gets not, though. He got blasted by the wand! There was a dull thud and a loud, Ow! It sounded as though Ron had just kicked Lockhart in the shins. No less than Gilderoy Lockhart deserves, as I'm sure you agree. His awfulness here reaches new lows. It is one thing to steal stories and memories, but now he is sentencing Ginny Weasley to death. There is a discussion about how we are supposed to interpret his statements here. There is a discussion that, on the one hand, his plan is to completely remove Ron and Harry's memories, and then presumably lead them back to safety, the hero of the hour, because he has managed to save two out of the three children who went into the, or not even into the Chamber of Secrets, but descended beneath uh, Hogwarts Castle itself. Alternatively, there is a, a school of interpretation that says that, no, his plan is to remove their memories forcibly and then return to Hogwarts alone, claiming that Harry and Ron were also killed beneath the school, trusting that they will eventually be taken by the Basilisk or by whatever else we can find within the Chamber of Secrets. I generally, I think, believe the former of those two. I think his intent is to... Uh, I think his intent is to rescue Harry and Ron and does not necessarily to allow Harry and Ron to die, but certainly he is leaving Ginny Weasley to whatever fate awaits her, which, as a fan of Ginny Weasley as I am, is, is a difficult thing for me to forgive. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> so here we see two really interesting things, one of which is going to, to become clear next week for those of you who haven't read ahead. I think I can tell you pretty, pretty safely that... Uh, all of Lockhart's memories have now been removed. He has forgotten his own lie. He has forgotten his own life and celebrity, this constructed facade, and will be, as a consequence, a much nicer person. But more importantly, we're seeing here another powerful echo of the first book, because once again, Harry has been stripped of companionship. Once again, Harry has ended up alone, beneath the castle, about to walk into danger. There is now no one to whom Harry can turn but himself. But there is an interesting difference here. 
Because in the first book, in the pursuit of the philosopher's stone, we were faced with trials. We were faced with actual established designed obstacles. And those obstacles, yes, left Harry ultimately by himself in order to face Professor Quirrell. Here, though, there are no defined obstacles. I mean, we could perhaps look at the secret parcel tongue access point in Moaning Myrtle's bathroom as a kind of obstacle, as a similar kind of thing. But here we're facing something much more dangerous. And there is something... There is something terribly unpleasant about that simple line. Harry flung his arms over his head and ran, slipping over the coils of snakeskin. That's a particularly, you know, gross and unsettling image. I'm not particularly squeamish about snakes, but that's that's a tough one. There's something about the, the skin element that, that's a little tough to get along with there. So Harry isn't facing these orchestrated challenges. He's not facing a series of trials designed to test He's facing something darker, something wilder, something more elemental, something more animalistic. But this is, in itself, a corrupt kind of animalism. This is a corrupt kind of savagery. Because basilisks exist, we know that from the book. Is the basilisk's natural habitat a chamber beneath a sewer, beneath a school? because it seems unlikely they would have evolved naturally in that habitat. Here, I think, and we're going to talk a little about the basilisk, of course, next, because we face it in person, but here we're led to see this as a corruption of the natural order, which echoes, of course, the forbidden forest. We couldn't be in two more diametrically opposed environments here. The depths of the forbidden forest, as far as we have ever moved into the realm of fairy, cut off from from light and life and companionship. Well, here we're cut off again, and we're cut off from light, certainly. But here we're in an artificial environment, an environment that was constructed with express purpose, express intent. So the basilisk here is, I think, almost inevitably corrupted. There is nothing here that is natural. And I wonder how we interpret that as we move into the final showdown. That, I think, is going to do it. We are drawing close to the end of our time together. I'm going to take a look at the Twitter chat. I'm going to take a look at the YouTube chat. I'm going to take a quick look at the Discord channel, which is still a little quiet there. Um... But before we do that, let's move on and talk about our plans. Because, guys, I have to tell you, if you enjoy Dear Mr. Potter, then I've got great news for you because you've got a lot to look forward to in the course of the next week. For reasons outside of my control, I have had to compress ever so slightly the end of this series. And what that means is, as I move on to my last slide of the day, we are going to live tweet the Chamber of Secrets movie At 9 p.m. Eastern this coming Tuesday, I say we are going to, I am going to live tweet. You guys are absolutely welcome to join me. It is also completely optional. Do not worry if you can't make it. Don't worry if you you have other plans for Tuesday evening. I know that this is uh, short notice, but I'm going to live tweet the entirety of the Chamber of Secrets movie. And boy, howdy, that is not a short film, let me tell you. 9 p.m. Eastern, Tuesday evening. That's October the 18th. Then, next Friday at 9 p.m. Eastern, we're going to have the final session looking at the book, chapters 17 and 18, in a session that I've entitled The Basilisk and Beyond. That's next Friday, October 21st, 
9 p.m. Eastern. Then the final session of the second season of Dear Mr. Potter will be next Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. That is one week from today where we discuss the movie. That's Sunday, October 23rd, 2 p.m. Eastern. So that's Tuesday night for the movie live tweet, 9 p.m. Eastern. Friday night for the final book session, that's 9 p.m. Eastern. And Sunday afternoon for the movie, that's 2 p.m. Eastern. That is what we are going to be doing over the course of the next week. And I hope that you will be able to join me. I hope that you'll be able to share your, your brilliant insight. I hope that you'll be able to... Uh, to offer your perspective on all that we have left to discuss. If you haven't seen the Chamber of Secrets movie, or if you haven't seen the Chamber of Secrets movie recently, I do recommend it. I do, I do, um, I have, in fact, just, uh, <laughs> just closed that. <laughs> That's what happens when you set up a keyboard shortcut that isn't attached to the right screen. There we are. I do recommend that you watch the Chamber of Secrets movie. It is, um... It is not a great movie, it is not a great adaptation, but it does contain within it some fascinating uh, perspectives on the material that we've discussed as we moved through uh, as we moved through the book. And of course, we get just great performances wall to wall. It's it's just lovely. And of course, we get Kenneth Branagh as, uh, as Gilderoy Lockhart, who I think does a lot to redeem a character who is broadly irredeemable. So we'll be able to talk about all of that. And it is too. I <laughs> just watched a little of, of Chamber of Secrets for the first time in a few months, and... Uh, it is weird to be so forcibly reminded, so continually and so emphatically reminded that we're telling a story about some very young people indeed. You know, in my head as I'm reading this book, I'm, I'm even aging them up a little. I'm, I'm thinking of Harry in terms of, you know, maybe he's 14, maybe he's 15. You know, he's, he's getting closer to his full adult capability. But no, this kid is like 12. He's, he's a very young man. Yeah. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, unpick some really interesting details in the Chamber of Secrets movie. I'm looking forward to the live tweet on Tuesday night, and then we'll do a real a real structural breakdown on Sunday. The idea is in the last session of the series that we'll, we'll get to grips with the structure of the movie itself as a text. We're not just going to be looking at it as an adaptation. We're going to be looking at it with a little more purpose, a little more, uh, a little more focus than that. And then, of course, next year when we discuss Prisoner of Azkaban, we get to look at at a genuinely great adapted text. The movie version of Prisoner of Azkaban is so much more than the book on screen. There are some really smart adaptive choices in that movie. So I'm looking forward to talking about that roundabout this time next year. That's when we'll get to that. But for the next week or so, we're going to have our hands full with the end of Chamber of Secrets. And that, I think, will do it. Oh, Perspicuous Enigma on Twitter says Lockhart and St. Mungo's is so adorable. I'll give him that. I love what we do with Lockhart, even in the closing moments of Chamber of Secrets. I love the characterization that's given to him. It, it's so great and, and so, so humble. And it's one of the things I think that emphasizes the tragedy of Gilderoy Lockhart, which is you can absolutely imagine how this started slowly. You can imagine how he stole one story and, and, and destroyed one memory and how that snowballed completely out of control. And of course, again, in much the same way as the Percy, in much the same way as the Percy subplot is really beautifully constructed a long way in the background of, of this novel, I think the Gilderoy Lockhart story is constructed just as beautifully, just as deftly, and just as far in the background. I think that we're not encouraged to look at this ridiculous, you know, series of books that he's written. Um and to, and to see anything suspicious in that. I don't think we're necessarily supposed to think, well, how, how did one person achieve all of this? But when you look back at the book with the knowledge of who and what Gilderoy Lockhart is, 
And of course, it stands out immediately that it's impossible that one person could have had all of these experiences, had all of these adventures, faced down all of these terrible things. And of course, the incompatibility of the storybook version of Gilderoy Lockhart with his actual presence in Hogwarts and his his obvious and 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 potentially extremely harmful and problematic lack of knowledge. There's a disconnection there that I find just fascinating. It's, it's beautifully done. Again, J.K. Rowling does not get the respect she deserves as a very um, and increasingly technical writer. She is capable of, of some really careful and, and finely wrought craft in these books. So I got a lot of time for that. Good. Let's see here. Um, oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, we've got, uh, yes, um, hmm, rentals. Yes, I don't think that Chamber of Secrets is streaming anywhere right now, I'm afraid to say. Um, to the best of my knowledge, I believe that there is only one, uh, that there's only one version. I do not think that there is an extended version. I have whatever the, uh, whatever the Blu-ray set version is. So <laughs> I think there's only one. I don't think that's going to get us in any trouble. I will look into that and I'll, I'll tweet out some links and stuff right after, uh, Right after the session is over, before the podcast is available, even I'll, I'll uh, tweet out some links to that and we'll see what we can do to make sure that everyone's on the same page vis-a-vis -vis the Chamber of Secrets. Yeah. All right. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, okay. I want to go back. Oh, so Lauren asks, and I think this is with regard to, uh, to Lockhart. I wonder if he started as a journalist. Like, he tried to tell the story and it sold poorly because the hero was ugly. Those would actually be the needed skills to create a realistic story for himself as a hero, too, I guess. I don't know. Uh, perhaps someone else who has who has uh, looked a little more deeply into the backstory of Chamber of Secrets and into the backstory of Gilderoy Lockhart might be able to bring some extra textual knowledge uh, to this subject. But I actually don't know how he ended up for the first time taking memories and taking stories. Yeah. All right. Then let's wrap this up, you guys. Thank you all so, so much for your patience. I know we skipped last week because I was out of town, and then I know we had to reschedule from Friday. You are all wonderful and kind and patient people, and I'm really glad to be able to do all of this with you. This is, no kidding, just, just the highlight of my week, getting to talk about Harry Potter with all you guys. Uh, so that will do it. I will hopefully see as many of you as possible at 9 p.m. Tuesday evening. We're just going to hang out on Twitter. If you uh, are a Patreon supporter, I will also be hanging out in the Discord chat room, so you can come and hang out there, too. We're not uh, limited there by the 140 character limit, but uh, Twitter will definitely be, I think, our primary focus during that event. Guys, thank you so, so much for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you all Tuesday evening, then next Friday for the end of the book. Until then, take care. Thank you.